This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the studio is Emma Westwood. Hey, Emma. Hi, Flick. In the studio. (laughs) We actually get to say it and not be lying. I know. Pretty exciting. (laughs) It's a nice treat. On tonight's show, we're cruising on our Batmobile uh, through the crime-ridden streets of Gotham with a very emo-looking Robert Pattinson for the latest take on the caped crusader, Matt Reeves' The Batman. Then we'll be joined by director and screenwriter Susanna Nicarelli to talk about her film Miss Marks, a film which reimagines the life of Karl Marx's daughter Eleanor with a distinctly punk aesthetic. Uh, Eleanor was one of the first women to underline the shared values of the women's movement and and those of the socialist movement. Um, So a perfect film for the eve of International Women's Day. And we'll finish up the hour with Hungary's submission for the Oscar, um, Oscar's best international feature film. It's Lily Horvath's psychological drama, I'm going to, this is a mouthful, preparations for being together for an unknown period of time. (laughs) But first up um, is one of the most hotly anticipated films of the year. It is Matt Reeves' The Batman. Uh, But before we dig into this review, uh, let's take a little tour through the history of Batman on screen. Um, You may have guessed... I am a Batman fan, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> there is a there is a note of excitement in your voice. Let's just say. So we start Emma in the 1940s. Uh, the character is created by Bob Jane and Bill Finger. Um, so we start off with Batman, and then later Batman and Robin. Then in the 60s, we have Adam West and Burt Ward stepping into the roles of Batman and Robin for a TV series um, that's eventually adapted into a 1966 film of the same name. Uh, And then in the 80s, we have the Warner Brothers who start producing a series of Batman films. And these are probably the better known of the Batmans. I personally Mm. got into it, um, I remember when I first started um, sort of digging into this, the Adam West and Burt Ward ones were, I I did power through all of those, they're they're really good fun, Um, but quite a different take uh, with the Warner Brothers ones. So they begin in 1989 with Tim Burton's Batman starring Michael Keaton and there's also the 1992 sequel Batman Returns. Uh, And then in 1995, we have Michael Schumacher steps into the directing role for Batman Forever with Val Kilmer um, Mm. as Batman. Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher. You just made him a racing car driver, but that's okay. I've become a bit bit of a redhead, Emma. I've heard that. (laughs) Michael Schumacher was on my mind. Joel, sorry, Joel, of course. Um, And that's followed by Schumacher's 1997 sequel, Batman and Robin, with Kilmer, who's then replaced by George Clooney. 
um, a very strong-jawed man. Um, and as an aside, there's also an animated feature released in 1993 called Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Um, and we can't forget 2004, we've got Halle Berry as Catwoman, which um, that film is, I think, one of the worst films I've ever seen. I don't know your thoughts on it, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, – do you know what? It's kind of disappeared into the whole realm of Batman films, so that means it mustn't have had a great impact <laughs> on me, let's just say. Yeah. I remember uh, Michelle Pfeiffer as yes, Catwoman. Yes, yes. I mean, that had an impact. Definitely, yeah, <laughs> iconic. And Poison Ivy um, played by oh, – I've had a mind blank now on who Ooh, played Poison Ivy. Yeah, you've given me one. We'll look it up and All we'll right. get back to you. Okay, I'll um, do that. And then in 2005 – Christopher Nolan reboots the franchise with Batman Begins starring Christian Bale, who goes on to star in two more films in what was called the Dark Knight series. Uh, We have 2008's The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises in 2012. Uh, And in 2013, then Warner Brothers launch what's called the DC Extended Universe, which means that Ben Affleck ends up playing the caped crusader in Zack Snyder's 2016 film Batman vs Superman Dawn of Justice. I didn't see that one. Neither. I think Uma Thurman played... Oh, that's exactly it. Yes, yes. Thank you for looking that one up. Um, And the following year in 2014, Batman gets his own Lego movie, suitably titled The Lego Batman Movie. And then in 2019, Batman's nemesis, The Joker, gets his own movie in Todd Phillips' Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix as the iconic villain. Amazing film. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Actually, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it a lot when I was watching Matt Reeves' The Batman. That doesn't surprise me. Mm. Mm. Yes. So before we actually tuck into Matt Reeves' The Batman, Emma, do you have a favourite Batman? Of the Batman? Yeah. Like the person playing it, the actor playing it. Because I think this is – so Robert Pattinson is the 10th actor – to play him if we include every single screen representation. Do you know what? Nostalgia plays a big role in this for Mm. me. So Adam West, because I grew up, I used to watch Adam West on um, TV, you know, as a kid in the, like a a wee kid, like I'm talking three, four, there was the cartoons and Batman in the afternoon. So, yeah, that, so that, yeah, there's something about, um, Adam West with Eartha Kitt as yes. <laughs> um, Catwoman uh, that I, I absolutely love. But you know what? I was pretty impressed with Robert Pattinson. He does a good job. Hey, you know who he reminded me a bit of? I felt very strong Brandon Lee vibes from Robert Pattinson in the role. Mm-hmm. He's got this kind of slick black hair and often shirtless in these in his thinking scenes with these kind of slightly baggy black pants. And it yeah. just reminded me so much of The Crow and the iconography of The Crow and the yeah. way in which his eye he's got a lot of very elaborate eye makeup when he's wearing the mask that um, isn't immediately rubbed off. So he he kind of keeps it on and has a very emo or, or punky sort of gothic vibe going on. He does. He's he's very it, distinctly contrasted to Christian Bale. I felt yes, because well, there was a confidence and a swagger about Christian Bale's mm. Batman or the Batman. They even called him the Batman in um, you know the Dark Knight, uh, the Dark Knight, and I think the Dark Knight Returns. But 
Rises. Rises, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. What was the Batman third one? Batman Returns is the other. No, that, that is re- so. Oh, I oh. got confused. I, I, I have to admit I loved I loved the Christopher Nolan reboot yeah. when it came out and I thought, wow, this is really something. But then it sort of waned for me once it got to the Bane character. Really? With, um, yeah, oh, yeah. See, I loved, I loved no. Tom Hardy as Bane. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't <laughs> well, understand a could word. I. And they covered his face and he's pretty. You don't cover Tom Hardy's face. But for some reason he often has a mask. Yeah, or is difficult Mad Max, to. Fury yeah, Road, mask. Or, or he's mumbling. He loves a good mumble. He loves it. He's a good he's he's takes after the Marlon Brando school of acting. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually on the topic of voices, I feel like Batman often has a very whispery tone. Like Michael Keaton kind of typified yeah. the whisper, the Batman whisper. And we see it again with Christian Bale. Um and then I feel like, you know, Pattinson is kind of returning a bit to it. He's very Softly spoken. I mean, Batman's whole thing is that he doesn't carry a gun. Yeah, yeah. You know? And the, 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 um, I think Michael Keaton was the most surprising Batman at the time. Everyone was like, well, Michael Keaton? Yeah. You know, what is this? George Clooney seems to fit the role. Um, the jaw, as you yeah. said. It's that, yeah. it's all about the and jaw. Pattinson's got the jaw as well. He this, does. He does. Yeah. So, but I like that. I like the way that he could, because of the jaw, he can fill the Batman costume and be, uh, you know, a presence as Batman. But when the, the costume is shared, he's a broken man. Mm, you know, like he said, that whole true. emo vibe. He's still young, the straggly hair. The but as Bruce Wayne, he's very much the recluse. He's the orphan. He's never recovered. Mm. He's like obviously incredibly traumatized mm. and. I like that with the Batman thing. The duality yeah. of the character worked very well for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a line, uh, there's an exchange between Batman and one of the key villains in uh, Matt Reeves, the Batman, in which uh, the villain comments that Batman is more himself with the mask. So there's kind of that ties into him being, um, yeah, more comfortable in that space with it. And he, yeah. he's, I think Robert Pattinson's the Batman would be the youngest sort of interpretation of this role or maybe maybe he just seems young compared to the other actors who've played him there's a youthfulness to him it yeah it's hard to it kind of extract him from his twilight role so he's (laughs) he's sort of perpetual teen you know him (laughs) and um uh kristen stewart uh, sort of live in that teen role yeah but but both of them have really managed to carve a niche for themselves as really amazing actors who can really do anything oh absolutely i love our yeah. pats i'm a huge fan i don't know whether i loved him in this i think my favorite batman is still christian bale really and i love the christopher nolan series of, of batman i got really into it and um i think for me i was thinking about it there's i liked the fact that it had um i don't know a it kind of tapped into broader um broader narratives I felt like this one is very detective focused which is interesting because that's actually Mm. how Batman was first kind of a focus was on him being the detective Mm -hmm. um, role and this film definitely leans more heavily into that um I feel like when I was watching the Batman though it made me realize how much I really liked Todd Phillips Joker um because that was such a different film in the Batman universe Mm -hmm. um 
the more time goes passes, the more I like that film and appreciate it. Really singular. I think it, mm. it, it, what was so impressive about that, though, was the way it could riff on other films like King of Comedy and, mm. and that was brought up a lot at the time and it, it was a very pertinent thing to bring up because it was very much Scorsese's King of mm. Comedy, more mm. than even the Batman films. But to be able to reappropriate that in a Batman mm. universe was particularly exciting and also for Phoenix to be able to play that role after the Keith, the Keith Heath Ledger legacy, mm. which is incredibly strong and you know amazing role, was something of an mm. achievement, and I didn't feel like I was really comparing them. No. Whereas in some ways, I felt like there was more of a comparative thing going along with Paul Dano playing the Riddler in mm. this, and Heath Ledger. It, you you kind of had to feel. This idea of is he trying to out ledger ledger and <laughs> and you can't do that. There's a whole. It, he was kind of doomed to it, I think, right from the beginning. Mm. I liked the Riddler character. I liked the way he was really quite, um, ben, kind of banal in some ways and and benign. Mm. Like he he had that sort of innocent. Um, scrubbed doughy face look, which was sort of like a Jeffrey Dahmer mm, serial killer. Very Do you know I, what I mean? I think that's actually the true moments of horror in in this in rendition of the Batman are in uh, Paul Dano's performance because it's so relatable. And yeah. I actually, the Batman franchise, I don't know if you remember this a few years ago, uh, the screenings, there was concerns of... Um, there was a shootout, uh, shooting at one of That's the... That's right, there was. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I think it's an yeah. interesting... I won't ruin anything for anyone who hasn't watched the latest Batman, but there's a narrative within it that I wasn't sure how it really sat with that very real-life situation. Um, mm. I don't want to ruin anything. I'd be really interested to see what some of the comments are going to be over the next few weeks mm. about it. Um, but let's I just, you know, let's just play a little clip of the Batman so you get a taster. This actually doesn't feature... Uh, the Batman, because he doesn't talk a whole lot. So, enjoy. Mr. Wayne, you know, you really could be doing more for this city. Your family has a history of philanthropy, but as far as I can tell, you're not doing anything. If I'm elected, I want to change that. Thank you. My God. I'm going to go pay my respects. Will you wait for me? I'm going to continue this. So we've focused a lot on Robert Pattinson, but mm-hmm. there's a whole bloody cast of stars in this film. Oh so God, should yes. we go through them? So you've already mentioned Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, more more precisely, Selena Kyle. Uh, you've also got Jeffrey Wright as uh, Lieutenant Gordon. Uh, you've got Colin Farrell, an unrecognisable Colin Farrell Totally unrecognisable. <laughs> I mean, you, you usually uh, in this kind of made-up, prosthetic world character actor thing, you kind of um, look for their eyes. Yes. And I couldn't even see him in the eyes. No. I actually, There's nothing I, there. I didn't recognise him at all and then it was only afterwards looking through the cast. I'm like, oh, that was him. I only, <laughs> I only knew from basically just from the pre, you know, the promotion of the film. Yeah. But, yeah, amazing. Um, yeah, absolutely. And we also have um, Paul Dano as the Riddler. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned before, John Turturro, I always pronounce Turturro. 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 Yeah. Love him. Yeah, Absolutely I do too. love him. Yeah. Uh, he's a Falcone. Um, Andy Circus as Alfred. Um, Who I thought was fantastic. Yeah, he was really well cast. Loved him. Peter Sarsgaard. I always love Peter Sarsgaard, yep. but um, he's got a role. Uh, we've also got, I won't mention too many because I feel like it might give away some twists and turns. Um, but you also have a new character who you heard in that clip, and that was Jamie Lawson as um, Bella Real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the way this, it's interesting because you were just talking about how you love the Nolan se- series yeah. the most. Like I said, it petered out. It kind of petered out for me. Um, but I, I, when The Dark Knight came out, I was really quite blown away by it. And I love the the kind of Harvey Dent, uh, Two-Face, how that the broken, how he was broken down. Um, it had a really good character arc. I still think that's got the strongest storyline arc. Mm. Um I didn't like the Batman voice. It, that's Chris, <laughs> Christian Bale as a Batman. Well, listening back to that after watching RPAT, yeah. I much preferred what RPAT was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also felt it. the Dark Knight, despite the fact that it's called the Dark Knight, felt light compared to See, the Batman. I disagree with you on this. I felt that this oh. one felt – there's some real moments yeah. of horror – I didn't like this one at all. You didn't like no. it at all. I felt this one <laughs> I played like out it. like film. It, this was film noir for me. Mm, very and film noir. Yeah, I and like I see that, that with with yeah. Selena especially. She's got some yeah. wonderful imagery there. But no, I didn't like this. And mainly at night. Yeah, yeah. Mainly at night, and even the daytime scenes were. Whereas there were, you know, very sparkling sunlight days in scenes in um, The Dark Knight that, that just didn't occur in this. Not that that's something wrong with The Dark Knight, not at all, but it's just a point of a definite See, point of difference. I was longing for a bit more um, moments of light relief in terms of the actual... Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, Flick's, somehow, queuing, Flick's I'm just queuing up DJing the next. on the side Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. She's got two gigs um, at the one time, you know. This girl is in I'm demand. Just gonna, yeah, <laughs> but no, this this film for me, the the, the Nightwing, so there's this, that painting um, by Edward Hopper called Nightwings, um, Nighthawks, sorry, uh, that was in 19, painted in 1942 and it was used in all, well, it wasn't used, but in reflecting it, it was used in all the promos, promotions for Batman, which is the for the Batman, which is where Riddler is sitting in the cafe, the diner, mm. and he has his coffee in front of him. Now, this painting, straight away I was really excited for this because that painting was my desktop wallpaper oh. on my, my computer for eight. <laughs> Ages, and it just evokes an incredible mood. Yeah, and the fact that they picked that up—it's a painting that's from 1940s. Mm. You know, I think that was very much on purpose. You said it's a more of a detective story. Yeah, it was really imbued been, yeah. with that feel. Um, that that really uh, that appealed to me. But I felt that the point in the film where they got up to that scene. Almost was like a natural conclusion. I understand why they didn't stop it at that point, but it just we, went too long. Can we just mention exactly how long they go? What is it? Three hours and fifteen minutes yeah, or something it's ridiculous. Too long. So it's too long. we recently on this show <laughs> reviewed uh, Drive My Car, which is clocking in also at three hours, just under um, the Batman. Uh, 
well deserving of those whole three hours. The Batman, however, it really needed a good edit. There's a lot of repetition in setting up the characters. I think for I didn't think that there was any believable romance between Catwoman and Batman. No, um, I didn't. No either. chemistry. But not only that, but I felt look, it was interesting because they made her sexually ambiguous. Like I kind of felt that I felt that her true love was the woman that was living with her at the yeah, start. Yeah, me too. I and wish she called her baby and yeah. she was she was constantly motivated by that woman, you know, to help her. Mm. Whereas oh, I don't know the the Batman was more of a tool. As mm. in not he's a tool, but as in she used him as a tool. Well, she you thought they're on the same page and her yeah. I mean that's all yeah, it's kind of it's a difficult one to navigate because there's so much um, history into it and how much you yeah. decide. I think importantly they don't feature the death of the Wayne family, um, his parents, yes. um, which I think was a great creative decision. On the whole, though, I feel like this film just lagged a bit. There's a lot of action yeah. that fits a lot in in a small a small town, a long time, but it still doesn't progress the narrative. Yeah. I think what upset me the most is I think that the it just needed better characterization and to anchor those those characters so you care what happens like penguin i mean what did yeah. they do with that that was a i know i know ridiculous I, character <laughs> i did kind of like i didn't mind the way that the that his penguin persona was uh, reflected more in his movements when they cuffed his hands and cuffed mm. his feet and he yeah. kind of waddled like a penguin <laughs> yeah. and even catwoman she wasn't overtly Catwoman, it was just that she was a cat burglar and she had a couple of cats in her house. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Also, what happened? There's a scene in which um, Selena Kyle puts a cat on top of a motorbike and then you just don't see the cat in the next next (laughs) frame. Well, maybe you won't (laughs) want to talk about that. We'll ask the continuity person. I love that you you picked up on that, though. That's like. Also, another point of continuity um, there's a scene in which, as you said, you you just described the Riddler being in that cafe. did he order the coffee with the the you know with the, the, with the latte? Can you do art the latte of, art with a question mark please? while he's running from a building? I don't know. I oh come on, this is a Batman film. <laughs> but look, you know, it's it was. I feel that in some ways, these DC Marvel Universe films, um, as multiplex fare, are somehow now creeping into Bollywood territory, where the idea is. We want the most bang for our our ticket money. Yeah. So we want length and we want thrills and spills. Mm. And in terms of that, in terms of what it probably had to meet by a, a in a production brief, I thought it was pretty impressive. I mean the the D, DOP his name is um Greg Fraser. So he did June most recently mm. and he did Rogue One, the the one of the Star Wars. Love that film. Yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. And Matt Reeves comes from Cloverfield. I love Cloverfield. Mm. Which yeah, was Cloverfield's a JJ wonderful. Abrams. Yeah. yeah. I think Great that was film. his first film and he did War for the Planet of the Apes and Let Me In, which I thought mm. was an amazing um, remake from a an incredible an incredible original film, Let the Right One mm. In. So the fact that he managed to do something fantastic with that is really, you know, it's it's a talkable point. But, um, yeah, the, 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 this, I, I felt that this started and I was incredibly excited, but then it just kind of waned. It does, it was, yeah. Pardon the pun. Although Wayne <laughs> Towers, 
the Trump Towers of the film. I love the gothic interiors of it. Yeah, that looked pretty we, good. Yeah, I feel like we've, I've got so many more things to add to this. But oh, let's, no, let's, let's talk about this off yeah. air because we have I a know. special. Well, firstly, sorry, the Batman is now playing at all major cinemas. Um, but before, every cinema, every cinema. <laughs> um, Emma, we've got a we've got a comp. Shall we quickly read that out? We do, we do. We have two double passes to give away to a triple R subscriber to the film The Duke. Uh, which is taking place at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 22nd at Cinema Nova. Uh, this film is inspired by true events. It's uh, the story of Kempton Bunton, a 60-year-old taxi driver who stole Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery. Uh, it's led by Jim Broadbent and Dame Helen Mirren and directed by the late Roger Mitchell, or Michelle, the Duke is the first film to tell this extraordinary story. You need to go, don't ring us, head to rrr.org.au and go to the section that is actually, it's um, under subscribe and donate and you'll see a section called subscriber giveaways where you can put your name down to win this double pass to the Duke Tuesday, March 22nd at Cinema Nova. Um, completely unrelated, tomorrow is going to be International Women's Day and it's a day that celebrates um, the achievements of women. It brings awareness to some of the challenges we face and uh, it calls upon us to fight for a more equitable world. And it's also the release date of Susanna Nicorelli's biopic, Miss Marks, about Eleanor Marks, who is the youngest daughter of socialist revolutionary Karl Marx. Eleanor herself was a prominent activist who was uh, instrumental in connecting up the aims of the socialist movement with women's rights more generally. In Nicorelli's film, Romala Garay is cast as Eleanor Marx. And here is a scene in which she interviews women about their work conditions. Until 12 or 1 o'clock sometimes, sleep for a few hours and then start working again. They're little children working at tailoring. Some are employed by the week, some work by the piece. We work, eat and sleep in these rooms together with our own children. They work at pulling threads out of coats at one or two cents per coat. The owners are so hard on them, they don't treat them like human beings, they treat them like slaves. That was Miss Marks. And joining us now is the director and writer, Susanna Nicorelli. Susanna, welcome to Primal Screen. Hi. 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 Um, I think the release, I think the film was released on the 3rd of March uh, already. Oh, I mean, my apologies. Yes, I thought yes. it was, um, so I thought it was. It's out already. Oh, yes. wonderful. Okay. I, um, so, I mean, people can go tonight too. I mean. Oh, what, get what out there then. it there? I, <laughs> the time is up there. I got mixed up. Uh, Seven thirty. It's perfect time yeah. for the cinema. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll I mean, now. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so the subject of your film, uh, Eleanor Marx, she's a fascinating historical figure, and um, of course, very worthy uh, subject of investigation. But what what was it that sort of first drew her drew you to her story? Well, of course, um, she's a very strong and important figure. She's a revolutionary. She was, um, she, of course, she followed her father's uh, thought. She was the youngest daughter of Karl Marx. And um, she followed her father's uh, thoughts, but also she was a great communicator. And, um, and she fought in, for the workers' rights, but for women's rights and for children's rights. I mean, the, the clip you put on was about this. Uh, and this, that's interesting because a lot of uh, mainly the main battles against child labor were conducted by, by socialist women. 
mm. which is very interesting. Um, and so she did all this. She was a great woman, but at the same time, she had a terrible relationship with men. Mm. And that is what I found very interesting because there was once uh, a slogan, a feminist slogan uh, that said, um, private is political, which means what you do uh, in your house, who washes the dishes, and uh, you, the relationship you have with your man is also political. And it's not only about what you do and what you say outside of your house. Now, what I think is really interesting about Eleanor Marx is that, and that makes her a tragic figure, is that she had um, this man with whom she had a terrible relationship. They weren't married. They didn't have children. She chose not to have children for her career. She's a very modern figure of a woman, very close to us today. And, um, and she supported him. She supported him, and, and it was not the other way around. Mm. So she was perfectly able to kick him out. But at the same time, he let him stay. He let him cheat on her. Um, he would go and come back whenever he wanted. And I think that story, Eleanor's story, is uh, Eleanor's private and public story, is very interesting because it tells us a lot about emancipation. Mm. It's a tale about how emancipation is difficult. I mean, how the walls that we have inside sometimes are much di more difficult to to put down. And um, and she was perfectly aware of her situation. She was not a victim. She was perfectly in control, but she wanted it that way. And that, too, is very interesting, I think. Um, she was, in her own way, in love with this man. And that, too, is interesting. There was a, a, the relationship of dependence. Somehow, it, the film is also about love, uh, because um, a lot of relationships are like that, you know, and it's very difficult to to step out of a relationship, to get rid of a, of a person um, when you're attached in a way that you depend on this person mm. or you depend on the fact that this person depends on you. So it's, of course, um, very complicated. And it's about the complexity of, of, uh, of relationships and of, uh, of the, the, the idea of emancipation. Uh, there is my, my daughter now, who is eight years old, is doing a lot of things uh, in these days for um, Women's Day tomorrow. And in Italian, we have, uh, there's a problem because in Italian, we call it festa della donna, which means uh, celebration of women, party of the woman, mm. you know, something like that, feast. And, um, and the point is, is that it's not, there is nothing to celebrate. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a day of uh, a fight, you know, and, and, that's what Marx too says in one of the few scenes where you see him in the film. He says that, um, well, the meaning of life, that what gives meaning to life is the fight. Mm. So the film is about fighting is about the process of fighting and not necessarily winning because the story that the woman we talk about is not a woman who won, not on every level, mm. but of course the message she gives us is, um, projected in the future. And, um, I believe that that in the film is is quite strong. That's why I wanted to make the film. Yeah, and actually, it's interesting that you um, talk a bit about that disruptive element of 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 her battle because you know your film is not a standard biopic. Um, seems that you you play around with genre a fair bit, um, particularly in relation to the soundtrack, which features punk bands like the Downtown Boys, which we'll play in a minute. Um, in fact, The Guardian referred to it as a punk makeover. Um, what was the significance of using music from a completely different time to what is being presented on screen? 
Well, there is something, the, the music, well, I used two kinds of music. One, um, a few pieces, a few um, songs are actually Chopin and Liszt, and it's romantic music from the 19th century, because there is a romantic culte to the, to the film. Uh, but they're redone with electronic, by an electronic band uh, that I usually work with. So it is strange, because you recognize the tunes, but there is something, of course, very modern and contemporary in the way they play. And uh, um, and then I put the songs of the Downtown Boys that are a, a punk rock band, a contemporary band. Um, they are very young, and um, and um, they are very disruptive. I mean, their music <laughs> is is very strong. There is something about punk that is destructive somehow. You know, um, <laughs> revolution is also this. And of course, I think there was something so strong in Eleanor's story that was also. I mean, she was also self-destructive mm. and, and her message was also destructive somehow. And I think that uh, the film can be disturbing somehow because it, it's not, you know, those classical, you know, those films, the period film that celebrates uh, women's rights being conquered. And it, it's not at all a film that celebrates um, because there is nothing to celebrate, like I was saying before. Mm. So I think somehow punk music was very right, and the mood of punk music was very right for for the story, for Eleanor, for the kind of character that she was. Um, there was a version, I don't know what you're going to be playing afterwards um, by the Downtown Boys, but there was a version that we did for the film of the International, L'Internationale oh. in French, because, of course, that was, uh, at the time, they sung it in French because it was the hymn of the Paris Commune, mm. and they sing it at Engels' funeral. Um, and um, and uh, the, the, um, the Downtown Boys redid it in a, in a punk way, and I think that that song represents perfectly the spirit of the mm. film. Um, she, well, the, punk ba- uh, the Downtown Boys have a, have, a, have a woman singer, Victoria Ruiz, who has a, an incredible energy, and somehow in the film, at some point, uh, Eleanor's voice becomes Victoria Ruiz's voice, because somehow I think, as just as Eleanor used to say when she was a child, go ahead was her motto. And uh, even if her story is tragic, is um, mm, it's not at all what we would expect it to be. It, it gives a lot of energy to the future and to mm. us women of today. I think it works in doing that. And, and we walk out of that film. I, I hope young people, young women and young men walk out of that film wanting to change the world and um and that's that i mean if if it works it's really I, i've done i'm, I'm very happy <laughs> i've done my job <laughs> absolutely um you know that punk aesthetic it was it's also very present in um in your film film nico 1988 um which focused on the velvet underground singer and and countercultural icon and similar to miss marks in 19 uh, nico 1988 your focus on these these famous women seems to concentrate on their interpersonal relationships. For Nico, it's with her son Ari, um, and in Miss Marks, it's Eleanor's relationship with her father in some way, but also with her lover. Um, imagine creating a film based on a real-life person comes with a tremendous amount of responsibility. Does focusing on the interpersonal relationships help you to kind of craft these icons into more relatable figures? Well, first of all, something that I always say is that I make films for men. <laughs> I make films for, for fathers, brothers, husbands, and, yeah. and 
and male uh, children I mean, <laughs> um, and sons. So um, it, it is, um, I think these films say something about the way we relate to men, both of them, uh, say something that it hasn't been quite said until now. And that's what I, what I really want to do. I mean, when they, I don't, when, when, when I think about the people I want to see the film, of course I know, I, of course I want women to, to watch these films and to identify or not with my characters because they're very complicated characters. I myself don't identify with them all the time. Um, but I also really want the men to watch these films. <laughs> and and um, because there is something that we say, I say in, this, in these films uh, that I think they should know. And um, these, um, because there, there has always been a way of telling the story of women, which is, I think, very distant from what we really are. And it's not only something about us that I want them to know, but it's something about the way we see them. Mm. I mean, I think, uh, I think for Miss Marks, uh, fathers of, of, of girls uh, will watch this film and walk out knowing things that they didn't know before. I mean, the way a daughter looks at you, the way a daughter forgives you, the way you can disappoint her, the way you can crush her, maybe. Uh, same thing for for the husbands, of course, uh, bad and good husbands. But um, so why I, cho- I choose to tell the stories of these women is because, um, because well, first of all, I'm a woman and, and just as, as a man director, I, I tend to choose women characters because I identify more easily in them. Um, and that's quite normal. I mean, you usually don't ask a man, why do you tell stories of men? <laughs> well, that's just, you know, it's, it's normal. Mm. Characters can be female and male. So, uh, of course, I identify more easily in them. Of course, I think there is always, when I choose these characters, um, I want to make justice. You know, I want to, uh, I want their story to be told in the right way. Mm. Because there is always the feeling that, for example, with Nico, um, what they what they what they said about her um, all the time. Andy Warhol himself, she became a fat junkie and she disappeared. So after her, when she was in her thirties, you know, people would say, "Oh, she wasn't the beautiful supermodel anymore. She just disappeared," which is not true because Nico, in her thirties and forties, composed wonderful music, which influenced a lot of the music in the eighties. She had found herself. She had found the way she wanted to be mm-hmm. somehow. Uh, and she always said that she wasn't happy when she was the super top model and singing with the Velvet Underground. But everybody seems to know only that part and to assume that she was unhappy for the rest of her life, which is not true at all. Um, she found she rebuilt her relationship with her son. So, of course, I mean, I try to 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 do a biopic that goes in the opposite way. Usually biopics are like that. You know, you're really mm-hmm. famous and then your life goes down and and you're depressed and that's over mm. uh, while it was completely the opposite she was much happier when she was less famous mm. and uh and that's what i found interesting about eleanor marx i remember when i chose to make the film about her i read in a book in two sentences they said oh yeah uh, marx's youngest daughter such a good feminist such an incredible feminist but then she ended up just like madame bovary Mm. Uh, which sometimes it, it, it is true in a way. I mean, and she translated, you know, she translated Madame Bovary and she brought it to the English audience. She translated uh, Ibsen. And for her, it was extremely important to tell these stories of women because she thought that, that 
telling the stories of women was political. I mean, it, it was part, it was something that could, that can bring on uh, liberation. She, she believed a lot in the power of art and mm-hmm. the political power of art. And I believe that too. So, and, um, but it's true that then somehow her life in a way, if you look at it, ended up like the life of any woman in the 19th century novel. She was an Anna Karenina. She was a, she was a Madame Bovary. Mm. But then again, things are much more complicated than that. And maybe it's also what we kind of expect from these people, them to, for them to be flawless and perfectly live by the values that they're, they're promoting. And, yes. you know, we are all just and that's, human. And that's a huge mistake. Mm. That's a, a huge cliche and it's a huge mm. mistake. Marx himself in the film talks about also Marx, Marx's shortcomings. Um, <laughs> Marx himself, uh, well, you know, had a complicated private life and mm. – uh, well, what is interesting is this makes them human. It just brings them out of um, of the history books, and they become um, they become one of us. I mean, they become mm. like us, and and that's what is interesting. I I loved working on this film because I loved working on the material, on the letters, for example. Mm. You know, the letters. So a lot of dialogues in the film come directly from the letters, and because they were so, there was no need to 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 make them more modern or more because they were just so. You, you realize how close they are, you know, the way they suffer, the, 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 their irony, the way they mm. communicate. And so we're, we tend to consider the 19th century so far away, but, mm. but it isn't. Well, you definitely... And, and what's fun when you, when you write a script, sorry, about, about somebody who's really existed is that you work on these facts and then you choose. Mm. I mean, you can't change it. You can't change their story. I couldn't, I couldn't have her kick out Edward of the house and just <laughs> go on with her life. I couldn't do that because she didn't do that. Well, so you, I just had to deal with it. Yeah. Well, you managed to to inject your own take on it for sure. And if you've just tuned in, um, we've been speaking with the writer and director of Miss Marks, Susanna Nicarelli. Um, Susanna, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure thank to you. chat with you. Uh, Miss Marks is out now at um, all major and independent cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Um, It's now time for our final review of the night. This is a film that has been described as a clever, uncanny love story. It is Lily Holvart's rather ridiculously titled Preparations for Being Together for an Unknown Period of Time. Natasha Stork plays Marta, uh, a Hungarian neurosurgeon who, after meeting fellow brain specialist, uh, the brooding Janos, played by Victor Bodo, at a conference, she travels to meet him at a special rendezvous. The only thing is, he doesn't show. And when they later run into one another, he has no recollection of their romance. Here is a short clip. Oh, we actually didn't have a clip. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was, Here is Emma. I, you know why? You know why I didn't? We could get you to recreate it. The reason yes. I didn't select a clip for this, I looked through it, and it's very visually conveyed. This film, and mm-hmm. I find it always tricky. I love it when I'm watching it, but then I am like, how do I get a bit of dialogue? Because it's so much communicated yeah. in these. Glances and glances across streets and yeah, and across not good radio yeah is and it? across like medical <laughs> conferences it's not good radio unfortunately <laughs> who would have thought they like let's have this erotic thriller in a medical conference uh, yeah it's a strange setup isn't it em? it kind of is I wouldn't call it an erotic thriller though well I heard There's it not a lot of eroticism I, well I heard it referred to and I'm just going to try remember the term I think it definitely had erotica in the title but it was like erotic. Uh, 
uh, obsession or something. I don't know. Psychological drama. I don't yeah. mind a bit of um, obsessive love films. I find them. I mean, there is a bit of masturbation really in this film. That's tiny know. bit. It's not very erotic, though, is it? No. It's very lifeless. It's very European sort yeah. of. Vibe. Well, <laughs> you know, like that of... particular kind of European cinema where people have sex like robots. Yes. You know, that kind of, yeah. And then there's the other kind of European yeah. cinema. Yeah, so... I thought I'd better clarify <laughs> yeah, which yes. one I was referring to in case we get calls. I think um, this film, if we wanted to have something that was um, more different to Batman, we, <laughs> the Batman, we'd probably have trouble finding it. Uh, so we've got a, a show of extremes. <laughs> we do. But although it does kind of follow nicely from Miss Marks because it does it is really about a woman's experience mm. um, and a very smart woman and that's the that that's what the the play I liked in this oh there's a number mm. of things that I actually liked about this first of all um, as a psychological thriller and it is a thriller so it has this kind of Definitely. you know feeling of what's going to happen here you know mm. uh, that really propels you along um, like, are they crazy am I crazy exactly exactly <laughs> a lot and, of that. And, and and she's obviously super smart mm. but she also it's this idea of IQ versus EQ I guess that kind of a um, our our limbic selves versus our you know heightened intellectual selves mm. uh, she it's crossed uh, which was um, Flick did the setup where uh, basically that yeah she she sees this um, man again and he just like who are you and then it, it it intercuts constantly with her going to a psych who she's kind of pushing to say tell me I've got a personality disorder yeah. and I guess that's part of her analytical personality as a um, a brain surgeon yeah. or neurosurgeon she wants to have a concrete answer of what's going on absolutely um, but she's played it. it, it uh, for me, it played on this idea of this trope of the hysterical woman mm. without her having any histrionics. Absolutely. She That's was, a great observation. Yeah. yeah. She is a very measured and, as you said, incredibly mm. intelligent character. In fact, she, as she's getting hired at, at this hospital, they're, they're basically saying, you're too qualified. Um, it's embarrassing yeah. for us. <laughs> there was, I felt there was something going on about this idea of Budapest, and and I, I couldn't kind of place it in uh, in time. Um, and there was a number of reasons. First of all. I don't know a lot about the current climate or what's going on socio-politically there, but there was um, – it felt like it was in an earlier time for some mm. reason. The the, the the hospital facilities didn't feel as polished. The only thing that kind of placed it in the now for me was the use of mobile phones. Mm. And they kept on asking her. They said – because she came from New, New Jersey. She was actually um, working in America and they were asking her – why she came back mm. and it was for love and she said basically it was for love and this idea of a rendezvous as well oh first of all let me backtrack the um the look of the film as well kind of threw me because um I went okay this kind of has a nostalgic feel I don't think it's a digital film and I looked it up and it's actually shot on 35 mil mm. so that nowadays Subconsciously, I don't think even if people were to pick it, would it plays out on this is an, another time. I, it kind of had a sense of romanticism, mm. let's say, to it. And then this idea of the rendezvous on a bridge, a landmark. Mm. So the bridge being represented, metaphoric as well, being a bridge, but often 
when there's a rendezvous in a film like that, like The Lovers Meeting, I think of something like An Affair to Remember, yeah. you know, on The Empire State. Mm. And it's at the end of the film, not the start of the film. Yeah. And it's a failed rendezvous that basically haunts the rest of the film. Um, I, If you would like to see preparations for being together for an unknown period of time, it sounds like I'm propositioning listeners here. <laughs> <I know>. um, <laughs> You can see it now. It's out at cinemas, mainly at independent cinemas. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 